So do you get along with your family? <laughs> There's a way to start a sermon, right? Do you get along with your family? Maybe you have a t-shirt that says, you know what? Our family's like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. Maybe you got that shirt. Or maybe your shirt says, our family puts the fun in dysfunctional. That might be the shirt you wear around. Or, or maybe maybe you have a uh, get-along shirt in your family. Seeing this? The, the get-along shirt, it's, it's one big, huge shirt, and two siblings have to wear it at the same time. You know, one in one arm, one in the other, and you have to wear that shirt until you're able to get along. Maybe you got a get-along shirt in your house. Or maybe your family is more like the, the baby talking to his baby friend on his baby phone, and the baby says, so today at church, a guy in a suit tried to drown me in a little pool, and I kid you not, my family just stood there and took pictures. <laughs> Maybe that's your family. Getting along with our family can be an adventure, right? It can be fun. It can be funny. It can be rewarding. It can be relaxing. It can be refreshing. But life in our family can also be hard, and it can be difficult, and it can be brutally painful. That's the reality. But how we get along with our family matters, especially if we are going to claim to be Christians. Now, are we always going to be able to perfectly get along with our family? No, it'll never happen. We won't even get close. But... Can we get along with our family in such a way that, that we help and we encourage our parents and our kids and our spouses and our grandkids and our in-laws and, and our Uncle Buck and our cousin Vinny? You know, can, can we get along with each other in such a way that we can help and we can encourage? Yeah, we can. We, we can get along in such a way that it's good for our families. So how do we do that? Well, you have to move. <laughs> I love the irony of that. Um, it, it gets even better because this, the title of today's sermon is You Have to Move Away. <laughs> so the way you get along with your family is by moving away. Um, that's not really what it means. We're, we're taking it from a completely different angle. And what angle is that? Well, the Apostle Paul was writing to his friends in a place called Philippi, and and he's writing to them to talk to them about what it means to have a good, healthy church family. But of course, a healthy church family, any church family, the local church is made up of a lot of individuals and a lot of individual families. And so whatever principles that he would give for a church family actually apply to the family family first and individuals first because we have to be living out those truths in our individual lives and our individual families and then bringing them to the church. As I have alluded to before, we can hang the Ten Commandments up all over this building at the church house, but what good will that do if we don't live them out at our own house? We have to live out God's truth in our families. So today what we're going to do is strategically look at how Paul's words to the Philippians apply to life in our family. Next Sunday, we're going to look kind of strategically at how Paul's words to the Philippians apply to our life with our friends and people we work with and maybe even complete strangers. 
So today, we're going to look at family. So what does Paul have to say about getting along with our family? And let me just kind of graciously say this too. I meant to pray this earlier, but let me just say this. Every single one of us are in a different situation with our families, okay? And so I would just ask that you would be a good sponge right now and take Paul's words and then say, okay, God, how do, how do I take that into my situation? Because it'll be different for all of us. So what does Paul have to say about the family? What does Paul have to say about moving away? Well, let's look. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness. A selfish person is determined to get his or her way no matter how it impacts and affects the people around them. And when you that put that down in the home, it's a whole other world. When, when selfishness is lived out in the home, what normally happens is somebody starts choosing sides. A child might choose sides with one of the parents, or a parent might choose sides with one of the kids. And then when you get outside of the home, well, it, the conflict gets even worse. It, it intensifies because you get that selfishness outside of the home, and all of a sudden you're in a, a larger group of people, and then people are picking sides, and people are gravitating to, to one person or to another person. And sometimes those people they're gravitating to, they love it because you know, they want people to gravitate to them. They want to have a little group. Other times, people will gravitate to a person because they've got an agenda, they've got an issue, and, and they're going to go look for a spokesperson. So, so they're going to go choose a side and choose a person to get their agenda out. But when selfishness is, is driving the world that we are around, when selfishness is driving our own personal attitude, it is destructive to everybody around us. This is what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus was talking to a group of religious folks known as the Pharisees, and they were doing the opposite of what God wanted them to do. And that's how selfishness becomes so dangerous. Because we can convince ourselves that in our selfishness, we are doing what God wants us to do. That God actually wants for our personal preferences to be met. That he's really wanting us to get our way instead of his name being honored and his name being glorified. Selfishness is dangerous because it makes us think that well, what we're doing is what God wants. Here's the thing, though. God's already told us what he wants, right? He's told us and, and put it down systematically in, in various ways in the Bible. So the best cure for selfishness is to learn and read and enjoy and embrace and obey God's word. That is a strategic cure for selfishness. Paul says first, he says, you know what? Move away from selfishness. Then he adds something else to the list. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Move away from selfishness and move away from empty conceit. Well, what is empty conceit? Well, by definition, the word conceit means this. An excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability, importance, wit, etc. An excessively favorable opinion of, of you. 
And Paul says, you know, you can have conceit. You can have that excessive, favorable opinion of yourself, but it's empty. It's hollow. It's, it's shallow. It's not everything that you think it is. Paul told the church at Rome in Romans 12, verse 16, do not be wise in your own estimation. What does that mean? Well, it means that we need to move away from pursuing personal fame and personal glory. It means that we need to move away from thinking that we're always right. It means we need to move away from thinking that everybody should always choose our side. We need to move away from empty conceit. Michael Jordan is arguably the, the best basketball player that's ever played the game. Even though LeBron passed his scoring record this week, I, I still go with MJ. About, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, something like that, he was being interviewed by ESPN writer uh, Wright Thompson, and this is what Jordan said in that interview. I've shared this with you before. My ego is so big now that I expect certain things. It's quite a statement. I, I appreciate the kind of the ironic humility in at least admitting that out loud. You know? My ego is so big now that I expect certain things. And this is what Wright Thompson said about that. Jordan is used to being the most important person in every room he enters. People cater to his every whim. <laughs> the most important person in the room. People catering to his every whim. And and, and Jordan admits he, he's come to expect it now. It's become part of his life. Matt Smethurst is an elder at Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He responds to this quote from Jordan with this. As a Christian, it's easy to feel discouraged, even disgusted by Jordan's egotism. Yet, the distance between him and us is, after all, uncomfortably slim. We won't to be the most important person in every room. We may not want to admit that, but he's right. Directly or indirectly, our sin can draw us into selfishness, draw us into empty conceit. And what happens is we don't even realize how selfish we're being. We have no idea that during the week we're not singing praise songs to God. We're singing praise songs to ourselves. Our hearts and our minds and our attitudes become consumed with wanting to get our way, with wanting things to be our way. And that's especially true, unfortunately, in our families, is it not? C.S. Lewis said this, The natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired. And especially it wants to be left to itself. To keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it. Anything that might make it feel small. It is afraid of the light and air of the spiritual world, just as people who have been brought up to be dirty are afraid of a bath. And in a sense, it is quite right. It knows that if the spiritual life gets a hold of it, all of its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed, and it is ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. I'll be honest, most of us will struggle to admit that everything he just said about us is true. We, we struggle to admit it. But you know who has no trouble admitting it? <laughs> Our family, 
Our family knows. Our family sees that we will fight tooth and nail during the week just to make sure that we don't kill our desire to get what we want. It's there. We may not see it, but others do. And I love the fight of killing that desire. I love how he worded it. Lewis said that, that we're afraid of anything that might make us feel small. If you don't know this by now, one of my primary goals as your pastor is to make you feel small. It's a passion I have, is to make you feel small, to make me feel small. What does that mean? I came across a quote this week. I, I joyfully can't shake it. Take your, take your people to the Bible and show them a big God. That's what I mean by being small. See, I don't want you to be left to yourself. I don't want you to move away from what's better. I don't want you to move away from what's stronger. I don't want you to move away from what's higher. David was king of the world, so to speak. And yet this is what he prayed. Psalm 61, verse 2. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This is an amazing scene. This this is David. He's king of the world, so to speak. He had arrived at the top. He was the guy that had all the, the power and the wealth and the riches and the importance that some of us long for more than we should. And some of us chase after more than we should. David, he was there. He was the most important person in the room. Everybody in the room catered to his every whim. But it was only in becoming the most important person in the room that David realized he was not the most important person in the room. He had everything, and yet he realized he didn't have everything. In the presence of the only one who is holy, holy, holy. David began to pray. He began to realize. He began to rejoice. He began to embrace feeling small. He knew there was someone higher. With joy, he cried out, oh God, God, please lead me to the rock that's higher than I am. The ultimate realization of David's words is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Jesus was and is the rock that will always be higher. The religious folks, they rejected Jesus. They, they pushed him away. He was the, the stone that the religious builders were rejecting. But Jesus was and he is and he will always be the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. Peter said it this way, quoting the prophet Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. See, we move away from selfishness and we move away from empty conceit because they will disappoint us. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for all of eternity. Selfishness and empty conceit will at the very least disappoint us. 
but at the worst will destroy your very soul. So what does not being disappointed in Jesus look like in real life? What does not being disappointed in Jesus look like in a real family? A few weeks ago, Pastor Matt Chandler was visiting with a woman from their church who was under hospice care. Listen to how he described being in the room. Here's what happens when they've given you just a few days to live. All the glittery nonsense of this world is gone. All of the things you and I think are so, so, so important are gone. And Jesus is still there. To watch her husband bound gladly in covenant love, serving his emaciated, weak, failing wife with his love for her and compassion for her, despite the fact that she can give nothing in return. What stirs a husband to do that? He had moved away from selfishness. He had moved away from empty conceit. Chandler goes on. Jesus meets people and carries them through. You and I aren't promised a life of ease. We're promised a life of presence. That's that's a line to marinate on for a few more seconds. You and I aren't promised a life of ease. We're promised a life of presence, the presence of Jesus. He goes on. Here's what I know about my time in that home. That woman will be healed, either with a resurrected body or some crazy miracle. But Jesus was there. Jesus was present. Where else do you get a bunch of people in a room laughing and singing as a woman's vitality disappears? The presence of Jesus was clearly in that room. It reoriented all of us around what actually matters and what doesn't. To watch her, weak and frail, sing, pray, want to listen to the Holy Spirit and hear, want the Word of God read over her, want to sing again, that is so beautiful. And then he says this, death is going to overtake us and we're terrified. And Jesus goes, no, no, I'm here. Oh, thank God, Jesus is here. Oh my gosh, we're home. That's exactly how he said it. We turn toward, we move toward, we cling to, and then we're home. We move away from selfishness. We we move away from empty conceit because it will disappoint us. But we move toward Jesus because he will not disappoint. He can't disappoint. It's impossible for him to disappoint. And when we move toward him, we are moving toward home, a real home, a true home, an everlasting home. You see, we don't run away from being small. We don't run away from feeling small because we see that Jesus is so much better and stronger and higher than we can ever Imagine, so we enjoy feeling small because he is so big and he cannot disappoint us. 
Now, someone might say, you don't need Jesus to take care of a dying spouse. I know a guy who says he's an atheist. Man, he was fantastic at taking care of his wife when she was dying. Okay, fair enough. Let's, let's think through that for a moment. Randy Newman carries on a conversation between a Christian and a happy non-Christian, right? Christian, happy non-Christian. It goes like this. Aren't you looking for something more in life? Like what? Meaning, purpose, fulfillment, you know, stuff like that. Not really. I really like my job right now. My girlfriend and I are doing really great. Did I tell you we're going to Maui next month? Well, okay, but those kinds of things don't really last, do they? That's okay. There's other islands in Hawaii. We're good. But don't you ever wonder if there's more to life than just temporal things? I used to, but I haven't lately. Isn't there a God-shaped vacuum inside of you? What in the world are you talking about? (laughs) By the way, that is what a non-Christian will probably say to us. He says this, don't you think life will someday become unhappy? Perhaps if we keep talking. There are people in our lives and maybe people in our homes that they kind of function like this. They, they live in such a way that, that mentally and spiritually and practically, they say, look, I'm, I am happy without Jesus. And if we're honest, especially if it's in our own home, if we're honest, that is really aggravating <laughs> and really discouraging. It, it can beat us down. Because we are, we're going, oh, you have this God-shaped vacuum. And they're like, yeah, I don't. Stephen Matson expands on this idea. How can Christians explain the fact that some of the best deeds are done by non-believers or worse yet, atheists? How should we respond when our secular co-workers lovingly help fix our flat tire out of the kindness of their hearts? Or what about when Christians hurt us and cause severe pain and suffering? Additionally, Christians can be sad and depressed while non-believers can be genuinely happy and joyful. And some believers are hardly spiritual, while many Mormons, Muslims, and people of other, a variety of other faiths are more passionate about their faith than we are. The poor rationale that some Christians use is that non-believers are really hurting deep down, and they just simply appear happy in order to compensate for their feelings of hopelessness. But this is far from the truth. And, and that's true. If you've ever been in conversations with non-believers, they, they're not suppressing feelings. And then he says this. There is only one difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christ. And that is a huge difference. Can an atheist take great care of their dying spouse? Yes, How is that different from a Christian taking care of their dying spouse? The difference is Christ. What does that mean? Listen again to this question that Matt Chandler asked. Where else do you get a bunch of people in a room laughing and singing as a woman's vitality disappears? Listen, this this is sadly very true. That you can have a room full of atheists laughing and singing when someone's life and vitality is disappearing. 
So what's the difference? Well, there's a big difference in sitting in a hospice room singing Margaritaville and singing nothing but the blood. There's a huge difference, and the difference is Christ. You can laugh, and you can sing, and you can have a great time, but if you are not singing about the presence of Jesus Christ, your song is dead. But not your song in Christ. Not your song in Christ. The difference is Christ. Still, though, what does that mean? This is super oversimplified. But this is what Jesus said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. That, that's the difference. If Jesus is not your way, if Jesus is not your truth, if Jesus is not your life, you are not going home. The world says we're, we're harsh for saying things like that. We're not saying it. Jesus is. We are repeating the grace and the mercy of our Savior who is saying, come to me. Find your song. Move toward me. Cling toward me. And before you know it, you'll be saying, oh, oh, we're home. We're home. Today, if he's not your way and your truth in your life, we, we plead with you, repent and turn to Jesus. Move away from selfishness. Move away from empty conceit. Move away from your ego and move toward the Savior of the world. Paul tells us what to move away from, but then he tells us something we need to move toward. Listen to the last part of verse 3. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We're going to unpack this a little more next week with verse 4, but but let's just download just a bit of it now. Humility means lowly or lowliness of mind. It, it doesn't mean that you place no value on your life. It means that you don't place so much value on your life that you begin to devalue the lives of others. But that's important. Because we live in a culture that is devaluing life. We live in a world that is devaluing life. From the womb to the grave, we have a culture devaluing life. Humility is, is low, but it's, it's not a no. It's, it's a low value, but it's not a, a no value. It's just that you keep in mind where you are. You, you enjoy feeling small because God is big. And you use your smallness to love and serve others. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, this phrase, poor in spirit, is another way of saying humility of mind. So in other words, blessed and happy and fortunate are people 
who have so much confidence in what Jesus has accomplished for them on the cross. They have so much confidence in the blood of Jesus. They have so much confidence that Jesus truly has paid it all. They have so much confidence that Jesus paid their debt and has raised them up from the dead. So much confidence that they don't think too highly of their abilities and their education, and their importance, and their wit, and their portfolio, and anything else in life. And and when we bring that into the home, it means that, that blessed and happy and fortunate is the family member that has so much confidence in what Jesus has accomplished for them on the cross that they will do everything they can not to think too highly of their me time, or their free time, or their retirement time. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean not to think too highly of of your me time, your free time, and your retirement time? Well, let's, let's set this idea down in the middle of caring for aging parents. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, verse 4. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. That doesn't need a whole lot of commentary and explanation, does it? I mean, it's pretty clear, right? If, if you have a family member, particularly an aging parent, that needs attention, don't call the pastor. Don't call the church. And if you do, call them seventh or third or fourth or fifth. But the scripture says, my responsibility is to make sure when my time comes with Josie and Pat, that it is my responsibility. That I have to take attention. It's my call on my life because I'm a follower Jesus. And so Paul just very simply just kind of puts it, you know what, this pleases God. It pleases God for us to take care of our family and strategically to take care of our aging parents. John Piper says this, God delights in this. He's pleased when children care for their aging parents. The main issue is if the heart of the children is a selfish heart or a servant heart? Don't, don't miss that because that's everything Paul's talking about. A selfish heart or a servant heart? He goes on. Are we ready to make sacrifices for our parents? Or are we resentful that they are becoming a burden? That's the real test. All of this may or may not mean that the parents come to live with us or near us. There are innumerable variables that make one situation right for one family and another situation right for another. Some of you have heard me say this in the last four years. You know, there's there's just not a lot of wrong answers when it comes to how we care for our aging parents. There are some wrong answers, but there's there's just a few. There's a lot of variables, but just a a few of them are wrong. But also just a few of them are best. Just just a few of them are best, and, and God's calling us to pursue the best. And let me just say this too, though. This principle also applies outside of aging parents, right? 
See, for, for marriage or for being single, for having kids or for not having kids, these same principles apply. Whatever the dynamics of, of your family might be, there's a lot of variables out there. But generally speaking, there's only a few of them that are going to be wrong, but there are a few of them that are going to be best, and we need to pursue the best. That's what God is calling us to do. John Piper's dad was Dr. William S.H. Piper, went by Bill. He was an evangelist. Uh, preached and preached and preached his, his whole life. And when the time came that Bill couldn't do all the things that he normally did, he sat down with his daughter Beverly, he sat down with his son John, and, and they came up with a plan together. Part of the, the planning process was that, that John was going to have his dad move up and they were going to you know, redo their house and, and have him live with there. But you know, they live in Minnesota. <laughs> and Bill said, yeah, I ain't leaving the South. You know, I'm, I'm going to stay here. Bless his heart. And so they came up with a plan together, and, and the ultimate end of that plan was that eventually he would be in a nursing home in Greenville, South Carolina. And this is what Piper said. Beverly visited him often, and I got down there as often as I could. As his memory faded away, he seemed quite happy in that place. And can I just say one other thing that, that I've heard Piper say about his dad, and, and you may have heard me say this before, but, but, but when Piper was sitting in that nursing home with his dad, he said, he goes, you know what we didn't do? He said, we didn't watch golf on TV. He said, I took my dad's Bible that was marked and underlined and everything else, and I just got up next to his head, and I just read him God's truth from his Bible. I whispered truth into his ear before he went home. Friend, Margaritaville will not bring you peace in your dying moments. But nothing but the blood, the one who can wash and has washed away our sin, that is peace, that is comfort, and that is a song that will lead you home. Piper says this, again, the main issue for the Christian child of aging parents is not the precise circumstances. Goodness. There's, there's so many things. There's so many ways it can play out. If you're in that right now, please just stop beating yourself up. There are so many variables, so many circumstances. And, and you know what, what Bill Piper and Beverly and, and John Piper did? They sat down with all the information they had, and they made the best decision they could. That's what you need to do. It's not the precise circumstances, but what? He says, the main issue is, are we servants or are we selfish? So, how are you doing with the main issue? Are you selfish or are you serving? For the glory of God, for the good of your family, and listen, for the good of your soul. Let us move away 
from selfishness. Let us move away from empty conceit. And let us, for the glory of God, for the good of our families, and for the good of our own souls, let us move toward serving. Because in Christ, that is the only way home. It's the only way home.